Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple pastor scholars dig in to the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all and equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons for the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation uh, for Wesley Seminary, Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Larissa Levesheva, who is a professor of Bible and specifically an expert in Old Testament uh, literature, and here at Wesley Seminary, along with me, one of my longtime uh, colleagues here at the seminary. And our text this week is Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 49, 1 through 7. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already doing so, so that you'll never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you enjoy the show, go ahead and hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show on to others uh, through social media or whatever means you like so that people find out about the show. Um, and with that said, thanks for listening and enjoy the show, this conversation with Larissa. jump right in? Sure. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7. Would you like to read, or shall I read it? Usually... Well, i read. You read? Mm-hmm. You read, I'll pray. Sounds good. Okay. Go for it. Listen to me, O coastlands. Pay attention, you peoples from far away. The Lord called me before I was born. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand... He hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my cause is with the Lord and my reward with my God. And now the Lord says, Who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth." Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the slave of rulers. Kings shall see and stand up, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves, because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, and all desires known. We ask that you would cleanse the thoughts and desires of our hearts, that we may be faithful to the word of God, which has been entrusted to us to carry, uh, entrusted to Lara and I as students of the word, and entrusted as teachers as well. Um, we hope that what we say and share would be uh, faithful and in turn be fruitful in the hearts and minds of all those who listen in, for whom we also pray, uh, trusting that you will be at work in them to confirm, clarify, and correct uh, what we have to offer this hour. And so, Lord, we pray for this time, that in this time, your word would be heard, would be spoken, and would begin to be enacted. We ask this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks again for uh, taking the time to, to do this. Let's just start with some some observing and even if we want to get into the 
anything of interest in the language or just the text as it stands, and then we can start talking about what it means as as the time unfolds. But what's okay. uh, what's what's the what's what grabs you the most uh, with this text? Before I start peppering you with questions about the Hebrew, <laughs> um, this this chapter. Chapter 49 starts a new segment or a new division in the book ah, okay. that goes um, all the way through chapter 55. So this is not the first servant song that we see in Isaiah. Right, which is 42, right? Yeah, there be the is, first yeah. kind of servant song. Yeah. Right. So there are echoes to chapter 42 in here. Okay. But there are also echoes to early chapters in Isaiah about you know, cleansing and bringing people back. So that sure. is, um, if there was ever a question as we were reading chapters before 49, mm-hmm. how God was supposed to do that. Right. So in 49, we actually see what he's going to do. He's going to choose a servant. And through that servant, he's bring going back. to bring uh, yeah, Jacob and the all the nations. Yeah, that broader him. perspective is more right. unique to forty and later, right? right. Is that yes. not that there aren't hints maybe right. in thirty five, but um right. yeah, it's really interesting. So in the le- in the lectionary for year A, which is what we're in now, the Old Testament readings are in Advent are pretty much all from Isaiah, but all mm-hmm. pretty much from quote first Isaiah, right? Mm-hmm. One through thirty nine. Right. And then uh most of the readings in Epiphany which that we're mm-hmm. recording today are not I, not exclusively, but heavily from from second and third Isaiah. So there's a kind of natural, which kind of fits Advent and Epiphany, right? right. The kind of waiting for restoration, right. but in a more kind of open-ended way, and then kind of more specifics of the plan of how that restoration is going to take place. Does that sound yes? Right. Yes. So mm-hmm. the structure of Isaiah, in many ways, is being. Um, I mean, the lectionary is not perfect, of course, but right. uh, it has all kinds of annoying flaws, and but. At least in the overall pattern, it's kind of mapping on to that Isaiah pattern in, right. a, in a pretty yes. cool way, mm-hmm. in a way that I didn't realize actually till <laughs> you were just saying that. I'm like, oh yeah, it kind of makes sense, right? So like, like last week, this is for our listeners, mm-hmm. not you, but, uh, <laughs> cause we're, we record ahead people. This isn't live. Uh, but, uh, um, you know, last week it was with Mandy and Isaiah 42, another servant song, mm-hmm. right? And so then 49. Um, so anyway. Just thought I'd throw that out as something kind of interesting for what it's yeah. worth. <laughs> yeah, so here we're getting the plan is this this character of the servant, which is interesting. I, I had a question actually even about that. What okay. version were you using today that you brought? NRSV. Cool. It was interesting in verse 7, um, there was a reference to either Israel or the servant, which of mm-hmm. course are – in a strange way identified too, which is a mm. thing that we can discuss. But um NRSV translated as slave of the rulers. Um, mm. but it is the same word here, Ebed. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So I mean, is this word being kind of I, I guess the NRSV is kind of trying to highlight a different sense of a kind of negative sense of servant that they even though they were the slave of the rulers, now the kings are bowing right. before. But at least it's interesting that, that word keeps being used. Right. Um, it actually, you know, would have been better if they kept it as servant. I think so too, but <laughs> because then it, you know, shows the consistency. So it's still about the same person, still about the um, servant he's serving. So, but sometimes, yeah, just try to look for synonyms, and yeah, you think it will make the translation better. Yeah, and I mean, there's some sensibility that the synonym there to because it is being used differently, but. It's this more kind of negative sense of the term. And yet, that's the whole point of right. using the language of servant is you don't expect a servant right. to be doing all this awesome Correct. stuff. But mm-hmm. the point is, is when you're the servant of Yahweh, that's like being right. <laughs> king of everything. So that's the the great inversion that right. is being presented here. Right. No wonder, not that we will rush to this, but no wonder these kinds of passages were so attractive to the New Testament writers. Right. Because of the way they um uh they map on to that kind of paradox of exaltation and humility that was such a theme in Jesus' life. Right. You know? Yeah. So there's that thematic connection, whatever we think of them as kind of prophecies 
specific right. to Christ, which I think usually if you bring that up too soon, it just messes up your reading of the text because right. you miss right. the, the original exile return meaning. But right. but the thematic connection is kind of hard to miss. <laughs> right. So Jesus fits the mold yeah. that the Old Testament makes uh, throughout you know, from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament, there is this mold being formed. Nice. And then looking back through the lens of the New Testament, because we are on the other side of it, yeah, we can see how Jesus perfectly fits into the mold. Yeah, so, that's a nice because, because of the you know, at the in the first century and even in the second century, there were people constantly showing up saying that they were Messiah. Mm-hmm. And people would believe and would follow. So, but the uh, the way in which Jesus fits into the mold was what you know how he was born, what he did, how he healed, how he preached, how he died and was yeah. resurrected. So, all of that perfectly fits the mold. Yeah, that mold is fun because, of course, they the mold uh, the language of mold implies that it's been used. You know, mold right. stamps a shape, right? Gives shape to an object, and the initial use. To just play with this now, right. the initial use of the mold is the the means by which uh, Israel was brought home from right. exile. Right, that's kind of the original meaning. Right, um, which in many ways, you know, uh, sh- shapes the mold. Right. But then mm-hmm. now I'm getting ridiculous, but I'll just <laughs> do it because Jesus both perfectly fits the mold, but also in a weird way kind of breaks the mold because he's right, the right. the unique one who is. You know, uh, like you say, in hindsight, you then also reinterpret the mold in light of him, right? right. It's, it's going both directions, right? right? Um, oh, that's that's fun. That's fast. So, that imagery that helps <clears throat> of the mold because it helps us not rush to say, yeah, the only Jesus. meaning of this is as an interpretation of the event of Jesus. And right. yet we're not refusing to have that surplus of meaning on the radar, kind of right. keeping both of those up and running. Yeah, because until <clears throat> about, um, you know, even in chapter 42, the first servant song, Israel perfectly fits yeah. that description of a servant. Yeah, yeah. And so, it's identified. I mean, it even right. says you are Israel. Right. Um, so. But here, you're, are you implying that here it pushes a little beyond right. because of the differentiation? Yeah. It's, you know, if you... You know, when you have little kids and they're learning to um, identify different shapes, mm-hmm. you know, there's a game where they have to put a triangle in a specific mold or a mm-hmm. circle. So if we think about it, um, a triangle may fit into the mold of the square. Mm. If it's smaller, but, ah. But then it will fall. It doesn't fill it completely. Right. So, and it takes time for a child to learn which way to do it. So, in a way, what we see is the mold is being formed with the understanding that that may be Israel, but when the mold is applied to Israel, Israel doesn't uh, fit it perfectly. That's a great so, image for fulfillment because the language of fulfillment can imply that it, thing was empty and there was it had no meaning before, right. which is not what it means. Right. That, yeah, the triangle does fit inside that large square. But doesn't fit fully, Correct. right? Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. So, tell me, and we we don't have to camp on this too long if you don't want to. But so I, I just had Dan uh, Freemeyer on, and we had another servant song, a later one that appears in the Christmas readings for the second okay. Sunday after Christmas from Isaiah sixty three. So okay. kind of one little out of order thing, but. And he mentioned just in passing, we didn't spend a lot of time on the servant question, so you and I mm-hmm. can if we want, but. Um, he just said in passing, like that the servant is has this multivalence, just like mm. you suggested. Of it's Israel, mm-hmm. but it's also one Israelite, and um, it's also can be one person who's not an Israelite that's working for God from right. the outside, like with uh, the Persian king right. that brings the back, and but it's also the author, you know. Right. And it's kind of all these at once and keeps moving around and it's kind of, it can be tricky. Now he said that as a description specifically of so-called third Isaiah, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of 50, 56 through or 55 through um, the end. So would that same kind of multivalence apply to these or are you more inclined to think, 
yeah, 42 is kind of Israel, and then in 49, it's really distinct from Israel? Is it a little bit more clear here? And then maybe his thesis was more, you guys just disagree, which would be even more fun. Um, but cause, cause his hypothesis that he offered was that at least in the last 10 chapters, the ambiguity is kind of maybe part of the point. I don't know what you think of that. I'm sorry to put you on the spot no, to no, no, that's pick a fight between my old Testament scholar friends, but. <laughs> um, well, as I said, I, I think by chapter 49, the, the shape, the mold of the servant okay. becomes clear, uh, clearer than in 42. Okay. And, um, you know, you said that uh, Dan mentioned that it can be the prophet himself. Um, for example, you know, if we look at that, if we read prophets, you know, prophetic books that we have in the Bible, we'll see that they never call themselves mm-hmm. all those things that the um, servant calls himself. Right, so they would never assume that. Sure. Right, they were given a message, but right. they would never, you know, be that posture themselves. Sure. With that um, authority that uh, the servant has here, and then um, yeah, maybe help. On, not that I'm speaking for Dan, but just kind of putting that hat on. I think he was meaning kind of more the the voice of the poem, so right. to speak, the prophet as as kind of an authorial voice rather than the prophet as historical person, if that right. distinction makes sense. Right, right. You know, kind of adopting the 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 character of the servant in the poetry of it, as right. it were. As it is here, it's very I, right? I was this, I was that, you know. Right. Um, and if we look at, you know, verse 2, for example, he made my, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. Yeah. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me, you know, looking at, Jeremiah or mm. you know Ezekiel they you know they they have similar type of imagery that goes with their call yeah right yeah. so or even the, the call, call me of from Isaiah the womb. right that sounds very Jeremiah right or the sword yeah um, the sword as a word of the mouth, of the mouth. so ah. the begin the call of Isaiah right what what happens his lips are cleansed right so that he would speak now only the word of God. So, yeah, there are um, there are enough um, things here in the in uh, chapter forty nine to see that it could be a prophet. Yeah, or at least like it's, a prophetic. Voice. But it could be prophetic imagery for speaking of the servant right. or of Israel, right? As functioning as a prophet to the nations, right? In a way, yeah. I mean that that comes out really clearly here, right? With the language of. Uh, you know, in verse uh, six and seven, right? You know, it's too small a thing, right? To just raise up a servant to bring home right. Jacob, right? I'm going to do this, not, you know, um, to be a light to the Gentiles. Right. right? And, yeah. And actually what you light just mentioned, nations. that the servant will bring the um, Jacob ba- back. Mm-hmm. Well, if it's Israel, right? If the servant... Is Israel, mm-hmm. and by then it's not already whole Israel; it's just the remnant, mm-hmm. right? So if it's that, the preserved ones, as used here, right, right. kind of um, just somewhat synonymous with remnant, right. right? So how will Jacob bring Jacob back? Right, 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 right. Right. So this is why uh, I say that by this time, by this place in the Bible, um, by chapter forty-nine, the the mold is getting clearer and clearer. Ah, okay. So this is where we're moving away from the understanding of a servant as Israel. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe – go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that in uh, up to chapter 49, the um, servant is described very passively, like as in he's not doing anything. Ah. God is doing everything on his behalf. So – I think that's perfect to fit Israel or the remnant yeah. in that because this is what God is doing for them, bringing them back, restoring them, um, even though the full restoration doesn't happen because they still don't own the land. They don't have um, the uh, the temple the way it should be. So uh, theological exile is still there, but God has done so much for them already to bring them back, restore them, and... Um, Preserve them and restore them. But in chapter 49, we see how um, 
servant becomes active. Yeah, oh, very. He, he is now doing things. Um, so. Yeah, first of all, speaking mm-hmm. with p- authority, you know, to the islands and the people from afar, right? Listen to me. And then verse uh, five, six, seven, right? Right. You know, but even you're going to raise up, right? Right. You're going to be a light, right? But even in verse four, we see that I said, I have labored there in you vain. Go. I have spent my... So, you know, he's been active now, right? So, yeah. yeah, that verse really struck me. This is a side point that may not be of any value, but since I know you're an Ecclesiastes uh, <laughs> expert, the, I just enjoyed seeing, uh, <laughs> which I'll pronounce terrible, but the hebel there, you right. know, like uh, that. That word for vanity, vanity in Ecclesiastes appears in verse four here that just right. struck me. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that that you might want to share briefly, but. Well, first of all, I think in Ecclesiastes that shouldn't be translated as vanity. Right, right. But it's a side point. Um, so well, here. Well, how's your preferred, uh, is it it's a, smoke you know, vapor? Right. Hevel just means breath. Okay. Um, so in Ecclesiastes, oh, that's, that's perfect. so like, good here though, the spending your, ener- spending your right. strength. Right. Just out of breath almost, right? The imagery here, maybe? Right. Mm-hmm. So I worked, but it's for like as if I, you know, breathe in, breathe out, and it's gone. Yeah. Right? There is nothing left. So that's why um, the translation here is that I have spent my strengths for nothing and vanity, right? So it's all, you know, was blown away with the wind. Nothing um is left. Yeah, so the first half of four, how would you, to put you on the spot, what would be a more fitting translation of the phrasing here? Um, and I said, in vain I have labored. You're probably fine with that, right? Right. Mm-hmm. But then, for nothing and, right? Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, a, my strength I have Just spent. a breath, you know, breath, uh, you know. For nothing uh, and for uh, a breath. Right. For a moving of the wind, right? That's nothing. For a wind. Right. So For nothing. It's just funny that it doubles up, right? The for nothing and right. something. Well, <laughs> right, because, you know, Hebrew loves parallels. Right. right. It's never one word. It's something else. So. Yeah, and so the vein <clears throat> in the first half of the, or the first phrase right. is fine. That's That's the better word just for straight vanity, right? Here is the... And this word is this kind of this breath, this emptiness, this passing wind, passing vapor. Right. So I have labored for nothing, in vain for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. So then the activity, though, but then you've got Jacob here. And actually up at that moment, you're right, is active. But at that moment, you might still think, oh, this is Israel trying to be good or trying to save themselves and failing. Right. And it wouldn't. And but. But then in hindsight, as it keeps going in the verses, that activity gets even stronger and stronger, right? Because right. that's yeah. that's the servant in verse four is kind of almost speaking out. Though I've labored in vain, I still trust that Yahweh – again, if you just took four and r- yanked it out of the context, it sounds like the psalm. Right. right? It sounds mm-hmm. like I, <laughs> right. I've, I've right. spent my energy <laughs> – but I know, right, right. That, that my that my reward is with Hashem and my right. my wages are with my God, right? That, that right. Mm-hmm. there's that sort of comp- that complaining and then the confidence, that classic kind of combo. Right. Um, What's interesting also about verse four that the servant actually speaks up and says that I labored in vain, right? A- acknowledging the fact that he accomplished nothing, mm-hmm. right? As a servant chosen by God for a specific mission. He tried, but he didn't accomplish anything. Um, I think quite often we, you know, in our life, we we think that it's too, I don't know, we uh, we come across as too weak if we acknowledge uh, our yeah. weakness, but or the fact that we haven't accomplished anything and do it before God, hmm. right? So kind of thinking, well, I'm a loser. God won't love me anymore, right? Why do this? So kind of moving, um, pretending, right, that everything's good. But what we see in verse 4 also is that after acknowledgement of 
a disaster and yeah. a complete, um, I don't know, doing nothing, achieving nothing. Um, he still says, my cause is with the Lord, my reward is with God. So even though I'm in my um, mission that God gives me, get, oh, has given me, right now I'm failed. I failed. Mm-hmm. But I will keep working at it. Yeah. So. Because I know that God is the one who's doing the most important right. work, right? right. Yeah. And so even though even though it sounds like I'm hearing you say that alongside – in addition to the – there's the beginning of the little sermon start that we might come back to there. I'll put a pin in that. But in addition to that, there's – that even though the servant is becoming more active in 49 in contrast with 42 in other places, yep. even the activity of the servant is always empowered by the divine intervention. It's because God empowers the servant and right. arranges all of history that their work is effective. Right. right. So, yeah, Not, it's quite clear that the servant doesn't do anything out of his own right. desire or, you know, volition or whatever. Everything that he does, he does because he is serving God, fulfilling his mission. Yeah. So, verse four is then really crucial right. that as we turn to this more active servant character, that it's not uh, misinterpreted as a kind of sort of independent agent, (laughs) free agent. So here's a question I want to leave us with a take a break and then come back and focus on this one for a little bit. Here's a question I want to leave our listeners and you with is, so who is the servant? (laughs) And that's the uninterpretive question. So with that question, we'll come back and talk about that in a sec. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Larissa Levicheva, and we are looking at Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 7, uh, as a reading for uh, one of the early weeks of the Epiphany season uh, in 2020. So, yeah, I left with the question uh, when we broke, which is, who's the, who's the servant? Who's, uh, who, do, who did, who might have Isaiah had in mind? Who, who? who first and best fulfilled this role as a character distinct from, though not independent of, um, Israel and all that. So what, what, what do you, how do you tend to, to take the kind of at least original, uh, intention or original, or I don't know how to ask it because there's so many layers to right. the development of a text and its reception. But anyway, t- t- what are your thoughts about the servant's identity? Well, I think that the servant is the Messiah. Not just Isaiah, but other books, you know, talk about the servant or special person coming from God, sent by God with a specific mission. So it's quite clearly a Messiah that's mentioned here, who who is able to do everything that God wants him to do. But I also think that this Messiah that even uh, Isaiah is talking about in 49 is not a, you know, mere human because of the task that's given to him with the understanding that he's able to mm. do that. Um, so in verse, in uh, verse six at the very end, it says, I'll give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to, uh, to the end of the earth. But in Hebrew, which we're looking at right yes, now. Yes, yes, yes. Um, it actually says, I will give you as a light to the nations, you are my salvation to hmm. the end of the earth. So I think there is a big difference. How did, if, your, how did your NRSV translate that? That my salvation may reach to the ah. end of the earth. Yeah. No. Right. Cheaters. So, you know, it's no. God you gives shall, the Messiah. You shall be my rescue. You right. shall be right. You know. Yeah. My saving power. My reality of save, save rescue. Right. Right. So you're a light, and as a parallel to that, you are yes. salvation. Yeah, and that disrupts the the parallelism. Correct. To translate that that way. Yeah. So oh, that's a good correction. Yeah. But the Hebrew is quite clear. Um. Explaining that, you know, the Messiah is the salvation. And this, this is a divine figure. Right. That's yeah. why, you know, 
a mere human would not be able to do that. Yeah. So, so, so when let's say someone came along, and I'll put my hat on and say, well, of course, these passages, their initial meaning, of course, would be referring to uh, the Persian kings right. that are addressed in some cases in Isaiah as the one the instrument that God uses Correct. the non-israelite instrument that God uses to bring Israel home and of course the divine sounding stuff here these are just metaphors and of course kings in you know Babylon and Persia were spoken of as divine figures anyway so no problem in its original meaning. So originally, I'm having fun with you now. Originally, this this has nothing to do with the Messiah. The word mm. Messiah is not here. Right. Um, it, this is just talking about about the way that God arranges things and uses the nations to restore um, Israel, sure. just like you know other passages uh, strewn about Isaiah and Jeremiah would speak this way. So wh- wh- I'm, why why muddy the waters by bringing in this language of the Messiah? Well, I'm grinning. I'm trying right. to. I'm trying yeah. to. I'm, it's radio. They can't right. see my face. So. Right. Um, well, yes, it may seem that you know um, the Persian king could be that chosen one who brings um, Jacob back to uh, to the Lord, um, because of what he did to, for Israel, mm-hmm. right? And we know that God chose that instrument. Yeah. But um, in 49, uh, in verse 3, for example, we read, And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, right? Mm -hmm. In whom I will be glorified. No other foreign king would be called Israel. Could be my servant. Okay. So three is key there, which goes back to that earlier question where even as far as even as it becomes very clear that this is an agent over against, uh, or I'm using that German sense of Gebrechtstein, right? right? <laughs> Distinct from right. Israel, the identification with Israel remains, right? right. Because they are in sense, the, in a sense, this is a, this figure, as you're interpreting, is, although distinct from Israel as a people at the same time is as it were the representative of Israel or the true Israelite you could say or something like that right kind of right I, I don't know how you resonate with that so the the, the 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 choice between the whole people and one individual is a false dichotomy in some sense this right. is mm-hmm. and that is inappropriate to speak of because it's purely instrumental when God talks about Nebuchadnezzar right. punishing or Cyrus saving right that's just God using God's left hand to get his work done, right? right. But the, the right hand of God is Israel right. Right. and specifically the Israel concentrate, which which canonically, once you plug another up, canonically we would call the Messiah. Right. Is that kind of, am yes. I, am I no. hearing you right or am I pushing you in the wrong direction? No, 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 that's correct. I think maybe if we think about two things, you know, on one hand, uh, Israel has an identity, Mm-hmm. On the other hand, Israel has a function. Okay. Nice, so nice, the Messiah nice. have, has the same identity as Israel, right? He is from Israel, right? He is part of uh, Israel. But yet the function of the two is different. Yeah. Right? Okay. Because okay. Uh, Israel is chosen for a purpose, right? And they fail to accomplish that purpose. Now, the Messiah comes as you know as a true is uh, a true Israel because the function in the you know in it in his function he will be able to do what Israel failed to do. Okay, so it's helpful to me to think about you know Israel and Messiah in those that really helps in, in those concepts. You know, like in, in the identity, yes. It is the same in the function. Yeah. They're different. That's that's very yeah. helpful. And in that way, I mean, it, it, it has roots in these, you know, before you have the messianic consciousness of the prophets, you nevertheless have this kind of dialectic of individual and uh, the whole in the priestly class, you know, in the right. – in Moses, right? right? The way that like 
because Moses is clearly an Israelite. But when God wants to just punish them and say, I'll set up a new nation for you, when Moses intercedes for Israel, any kind of intercessory role is, is a kind of one representing a community. Is that making sense? Yeah, Yeah. And vice versa, a leader is held accountable for the sins and failings of the, of the community. Right. And so, um, so in that, at least that kind of representational structure is, has precedent prior to the prophets, right? which is part of why Christian tradition of sort of messianic interpretation of these even less messianic figures, like, you know, um, is not completely uh, bonkers. right? Right. And the, especially the early church doing this in terms of, authors of the New Testament as well as the early church fathers who just knew their their uh their Bible, as they right. would call it, their Old Testament, <laughs> right? right? Who just knew their Bible backwards and forwards. They they weren't just randomly picking random figures and saying, hey, they look like Jesus, right? It's it's <laughs> right, that they right. saw this kind of deep there's a kind of deep grammar to the way that God works with his people. Right. God chooses just just as God chooses one nation among the nations, he chooses one Israelite among Israel right. to is, is this making sense, yes, or am I yes. pushing and, it in the wrong no, direction? No, no. And then it's the logic of election, right? You you, you uh, mentioned Moses, mm-hmm. right? He is chosen to you know for a purpose, right? To lead his people. That's the identity function distinction. That's right. where I wanted to go with that exactly. And, um, if you remember, once he you know complains to God that he has to deal with all these people, <laughs> yes, and it's your people that I have to deal with, right? You gave me these people. Yep, yep. And God says, well. I can send the Holy Spirit to other people, right? So <laughs> yes. the point is you're always elected for a purpose. And if, yes. you, if you don't function, as, as soon as you stop functioning, the function moves to a different person. Right? Oh, yeah, that's perfect. So, I mean, we, we see that throughout. But um, what I also wanted to say, you know, as far as the book of Isaiah is concerned and, you know, the second part of it, the the Hebrew scriptures for, you know, from the beginning were open to interpretation, mm-hmm. right? It's not, I mean, we say it's a closed canon, yes, but the interpretation of the That's text a good distinction. Yeah. is um, not that it's always new, it's depending on the context, quite often, right, it's reinterpreted. So even, closed, you know, looking... Closed canon, open interpretation. Right. I like that. <laughs> Like, again, going back to Moses, for example, right? In Deuteronomy, he's addressing the uh, the generation of the Israelites who uh, were born or grew up during the wilderness years, right? But yet, when he addresses him, uh, addresses them, sorry, he says, you were slaves in Egypt. Right, there it, it is It was again. you whom God... Um, to, uh, brought out of Egypt. So what Moses is doing, he is reinterpreting, right, what happened in uh, Exodus and Numbers in a way, right, for, you know, so that the community could be formed and transformed by the story, yeah. right, the story of God's people and God's relationship with them. So what we see in Isaiah is that Isaiah also is reinterpreting yeah. what you know what happens in the Pentateuch because of course this is the Torah, Exodus language. <laughs> right. Because yeah. the Torah is the most important scriptures. Mm-hmm. Everything else is a commentary right, that's right. on the Torah. Yeah. So this is what Isaiah is doing. He's talking about, you know, recreation, going back to the creation story, right? And uh, what's the whole purpose of you know creating people? So that the whole world will be um, with God, right? And it's you know clearly seen in Abraham's call. So this is again we see that uh, Isaiah kind of using that knowledge, right? The the history, yeah. um, a good knowledge of um, the Torah. He is now speaking to the people at a very different time and place. And a situation where creation language and, you know, restoration language is very encouraging. So, you know, the, the exile is not the end, right? The, you know, this was a punishment. You had it. You were there for a long time. But 
now it's time to be restored and recreated and so that that's the you know Isaiah is doing that for a purpose well that makes perfect sense then of then as we move forward then that same open living interpretation is taking place in the first century right. where Roman occupation is being interpreted as a kind of exile, either a new exile or a continuation of exile, Correct. which in turn is being interpreted as a new a form of slavery under Egypt, right? right. And so that it makes – and calling Rome Babylon, like in – right? Right. It right. is just is – just, uh, a continuation of this kind of pattern of, of right. thinking and of interpreting. And so then Christ, uh, Jesus as the Messiah. And, and of course, by that time, ch- chapters mm. like 49 were just taken for granted as messianic texts right. by most interpreters. I mean, right. there'd be some debate, mm. but it was surely the majority, I imagine, by then. Right. Um, right. that there's this unified character called the Messiah, even in passages that don't use the word. And right. then. And it's not just that he fits that, it's also that the situation fits, fits that. Right. right. And if the situation didn't fit it, then then again, it's like, if you just take Jesus and pull him out of his larger context and pull 49 out of its larger context, then you can debate, well, this sentence works and this one doesn't. Right. But if you locate them in their actual lived reality right. and the sort of exile character of being occupied by the Romans, then all of a sudden his sort of the messianic resonance of Jesus life really grabs you, especially this language of being spent up my breath and it coming right. to nothing. The notion that, that right. Christ's death is somehow right. being our salvation and how a servant is actually Lord. All these kinds of patterns aren't uh, arbitrary, but fit the themes. Is this sounding right? Or am yeah. I, am I off on a, no, no, no. a tangent? <laughs> you know, it was, you know, it was first Peter, right? Chapter two, Nine, mm. Verses nine and ten, where he says, um, "You were not a people, but now you are a people." Yes, right. That whole um, uh, statement—that's a direct quote from Exodus. Yeah, right. Exodus nineteen. So the the idea is for for Peter is that the exactly same thing mm-hmm. was happening to the Gentiles or whoever he's talking to that happened to Israel mm-hmm. back then. So that's why he. He can go to that uh, passage in Exodus and reinterpret it in light of the situation that his audience mm-hmm. living. So, yeah, that's the openness of uh, interpretation. But also, you know, as we read the Gospels, the way um, the um, Gospel writers present Jesus and uh, quite often quote, right, the Old mm-hmm. Testament, we see with uh, the uh, you know, fluidity and uh, the idea of, well, yeah, maybe it's Isaiah, but it's actually somebody else. But, you know, I'm using Isaiah because Isaiah was the prophet that everybody knows. So that's the freedom with which the New Testament writers can go back to uh, the text and reinterpret it. Yeah. So it's this very kind of free living, very oral. So you're just quoting from memory. And so, yeah. The exactitude, yep. point for point fulfillment isn't doesn't isn't as much point for point as kind of whole for whole. Right, if that sounds yeah, right. That's exactly which fits your imagery of. I mean, you could almost say to go back to it, you could say that you've got the so we had a square, right, mm-hmm. and then you had like a triangle small enough to fit inside the square, which would be Israel and it, right. and Isaiah forty two. You yeah. you would think, boom, fine, we're good, right. And then another piece comes along and we'll call that a, it's a star, right? right? And all of a sudden that one fits in and that's like Cyrus or right. Darius or whatever, right? right, right. right? Yes. Uh, that, that, that these Persian kings are kind of the salvation of Israel. And in some sense, yes, that's not false. It's not the whole truth. It's a kind of, right. it's a partial fulfillment, but not, yes. but a partial fulfillment is not a fulfillment, right? Right. And then, <laughs> and then over the centuries of interpretation with Isaiah, it becomes very clear to the the Jews in Israel and throughout the diaspora that no we're still in exile we're still waiting for these to be f- truly fulfilled and then you know Christ is that square that we're calling him Christ like it's his name Christ is the Greek word for Messiah right 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 that Jesus and his life is that sort of messianic uh, perfect fit um, that wouldn't necessarily have been anticipated but once once it fits now you can kind of see it and right. everything belongs. 
in the story. And all that is kind of like, that's the sort of large scale version of what you get in this just very simple way of the quotes that you mentioned from right. Peter and from the gospels or another gospel is this, the one that I've got out was this, uh, uh, and I, this kind of fits the epiphany season because mm-hmm. it's after the birth is mm-hmm. Simeon. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, now uh, may your servant right. go in peace. O Lord, according to your word, um, because my eyes have seen your salvation, same phrase. And, I'm, and I got out my Septuagint here and it's that same, right. right. So Terry on, yep. right. Um, mine eyes have seen your salvation. Um, uh, it, before your face, the all of the peoples, a light unto the revelation of the Gentiles, right? But it's got unto a light of right. the Gentiles. It has all those exact words that appear. Ice, phos, ethnone. And here in, in Luke 1 or Luke 2, verse 32. Phos, ice, ethnone, right? This kind of, right. you know, a light unto the revelation of the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So you get that dynamic of Israel spilling over into all the nations. And yet it's just this old man in the temple and it doesn't mean, and we're not claiming like all that it's up in his head. This is just a little poem. Right. Right. But that in the larger canonical context, that's, that's what's being hinted at is that this thing is happening in our midst. Right. And that's why he can use Isaiah, right. This, this passage, you know, those um, images from Isaiah to apply to Jesus, right. Because he knows his scriptures, he knows what to or who to look for. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, man. Yeah. Well, that's really good. Let's take a quick break and come back and offer some sermon starters. Okay. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with uh, Larissa Levichva, and she uh, and I have been talking about Isaiah 49 verses 1 through 7. And we did some talking about the text and talking about different layers of its interpretation. You mentioned when we were on the break uh, something about, before we jump into sermon starters, you said something about uh, um, kind of what's still to come after mm-hmm. this passage, which is worth kind of having in mind. You said something about there's expectation here, but we still don't know. Would you mind saying that again, just so we can get that? I wanted everyone to hear it because it was really helpful. Right. So um, in this, you know, second part of Isaiah, starting with uh, chapter 40, from, um, you know, 40 to, you know, 49, the passage that we're um, talking about today, it's it's kind of building up the anticipation and the expectation of this servant coming, who he will be, what ah. he will do. But the question of how is not really addressed in this uh, passage, but we're getting close to it because um, it does say that, you know, one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the slave of rulers. So kind of giving us a little bit of what um, servant do on behalf of Israel and on behalf of the world. But chapters 52 and 53 actually describe how the servant is going to fulfill God's mission. Yeah. And um, and then a 54, you know, and then 55, talk more about what that means. So uh, we are talking about 49, 1 through 7, but we need to remember, remember that context, it's a yeah. part of a larger uh, unit that helps us see uh, who the servant is and what he's supposed to do. Yeah, well, that's really... That almost perfectly fits the season of Epiphany, the month of January in the church year, is there is – the anticipation is becoming clearer. There's a greater focus that – it's not just this open-ended, Lord, help us, which right. is kind of Advent, right? Right. <laughs> uh, it's a more specific – no, there's the Messiah. He's coming. This is what he's like. Right. right? But exactly what he's going to do – is still unfolding, right? Even Jesus' right. first disciples are surprised by the thought right. of him dying, which of course dries from this language right. in, in Isaiah mm-hmm. 52, 3, 4, 5, right? Right. Um, so it's very kind of fitting that, that because some of those later passages really are more fit a more kind of Lent season where it's right. like the clarity of the actual event of salvation. Here you're kind of, it's like, yeah, all the expect, and it's very fitting in a way of the season, right? Because in January it's like, 
we just had Christmas, all this buildup of expectation. And then now what? It's not done. It's, right. it's almost a new beginning to where now we have a whole new layer of anticipation. Right. What's he going to do? What, what is, what is the Messiah? How is, we know the Messiah is going to save us, but how? Right. How's that going to play out? That that mystery is still unfolding. Yeah. I don't know. I thought right. I'd make a, make yeah. it. Take a stab at connecting that to the to the rhythms of the church here. Well, with right. that in mind, in the context of of uh, preaching, not that we have to think seasonally about preaching, but I think mm-hmm. it always is at least something to keep in mind. Uh, well, let's explore some sermon starters. Where where do, where would you want to go with a text like this if you were if you were preaching on it or advising preachers, which is what we're kind of doing, right? Um, any uh, any kind of sort of jumping off points that you think would be really uh, really key. For preaching a text like this, <laughs> that was a wonderful facial expression. <laughs> you already did one little um, one when you hinted at verse four, right? Yeah, um, and we could come back to that one, or maybe you had a new thing that just popped in your head there. I saw it. <laughs> well, um, I think what you know, what uh, we you know can preach about is the fact that the message that God gives us is uh, everything that we need to accomplish uh, is done by the word. Uh Right. So uh, verse two, he made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his uh, quiver. He hid me away. So the, Hmm. um, it's not that it's, you know, kept somewhere in secret so that nobody would know. But it's waiting for the right time. But it is a you know, a sharp sword in the mouth means the word, right? Yeah. So that that imagery goes you know really well through the New Testament and especially in the Book of Revelation. Right. Right. So the power of the word and the power of God's word, and um, in time, right? In the you know in correct time. So. Sometimes you have to wait uh, to uh, say what God gives you, you know, for the other person or for whoever. So, well, and that fits the suffering theme of verse four as well, right? I, I mean, it's almost like I've labored in vain, right? All the things we do without the word of God amount to nothing, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. And of course, a lot of what we say amounts to nothing too, right? <laughs> if we think of that as the things we're trying, but that is often we think of our saying as a kind of doing. We're trying to accomplish things. Right. How often do we try to figure out the perfect thing to say in order to get somebody else to do something, right? That's right. still, mm-hmm. as opposed to just speaking the truth, right? Back right. to verse, back to chapter 42, right. last week's text, where it's the reference to justice, mishpat, it's just over and over right. and over again. It's once here, but it's like three or four times there. Right. And this idea that, that truth and justice are enacted by just the simple word of God, right? That just right. tells the truth, right? right? Say it plain. Oh, I think that's beautiful. And I think that links. And so you can make a Christological connection with the, with the epiphany of Christ, that he is the word of God in the flesh. But then how does that look in our lives? Our lives, it means um, recognizing that all the ways that we're trying to make the world a better place through our work, <laughs> right? Really rest on God's God's work. And how right. does God work? Well, he works through his word. Right. Oh, that's really good. I, I like that and, a lot. you know, uh, there's a connection here with James, right? Who says, uh, why, you know, the wise person can um, control his or her speech. Yeah. Right? So what we say, the power of the word is such that we need to be wise in using that. Oh, this is making me feel guilty because I'm a talker. <laughs> But good guilt, like conviction, like, because it matters. Right. Yeah. Uh, he has made me like, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword, right? Mm-hmm. And he's hidden me in the shadow of his hand. And then he's made me a polished shaft. And in his quiver, he has put me, right? And so it's like that imagery of sword mm-hmm. and then the switch to... Uh, an arrow. Uh, and I feel like even in, in a sermon, like you could really play with this imagery, right? The sword and the arrow, right? Right. What does it mean? And asking the moral question, what does it mean to let myself be made by God into a, uh, a sword 
and a quiver. I mean, not a quiver, a sword and a, and an arrow that, and the precision of that, right? You don't shoot the arrow until the timing's just right. Right. Yeah. But it's also important to remember about the preparation time, right? Yeah. God has done that. It, you know, didn't happen overnight, Mm -hmm. right? The idea is that God is working in us, preparing us. So we need to be patient with that work that God is doing in our lives. To become the sword, to become the arrow, right? Yeah, I've always been struck by how patience, and you mentioned wisdom earlier, Mm. and now patience. And I'm being regularly struck by, especially lately, at how intertwined patience and wisdom are, and how the wise are patient, and the patient are wise, you know? Right, right. (laughs) And, And actually, that's a way of differentiating true from false patience and true from false wisdom, right? Right, right. The, the wisdom that's that's the fake wisdom that's just trying to have power by being clever, right? right. Is is the impatient wisdom that's always trying to to say how brilliant we are <laughs> and, and trying to control. I know I fall into this all the time where I'm trying to say, I try to say what I want to say in order to create reactions and and cause the next thing to happen. You know, right. instead of just patiently waiting for my turn to speak. And when I speak, just seek to speak the truth rather than trying to speak the thing that'll try to get the next thing to happen, you know? And so there's just so much wisdom in what you're saying. And in the same way, just false patience that's just like a doormat, right? It's right. like, no, th- true patience is wise, right? It, it's waiting to speak until the right time. But then when it's time to speak, there's a right. just yeah. and can be Need a hard word. Yeah. Right. Um well, that's a really, that's, man, my mind was not even remotely there. And I'm so just jazzed up about that possibility for a sermon that this picture of the servant and picture of Christ and then a picture of the Christian life that could be woven together in a sermon. Those would be the three layers I would naturally right. want to talk about how this is true for, you know, in the original context, how it's, play, how it's fulfilled in Christ and how it looks like in our lives. You know, right, and I think another good idea is um, to preach about is right. to remind the people that we're chosen, right? We are um, uh, part of God's family for a purpose. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. We are, whatever is dedicated to God is dedicated to Him to be used by Him, right? Yeah, election is not for its own sake. Election is for whatever God is doing, right? For the world. So I think that's. You know, it's it's good to be saved and it's good to know that you're saved, right? And you have a great relationship with God. But yeah, you, that's not The that's point not is, is that you become the salvation of others, right. as the last line says, right? Right. You will be my rescue. You will be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Right. God, well, man, you're leaving our listeners with two, you know, and maybe three if you had that earlier sermon starter about, right. about suffering. Right. But Two or two to three great sermon starters: uh, a sermon on the logic of election, and a right. sermon on the the power of the word. Right. Those are my. That's my title of that one. I don't have a good time. I've got a great quote. Can I read a great quote? Sure, absolutely. About, about how God's electing work works. Um, it's uh, let me find it. Okay, I love this. It's so beautiful. So, um, and we'll have to end with this because it's time to go. Um, God is the one who, in his son, loves all his children. In his children, loves all humanity. And in humanity, loves his entire creation. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. And it gets the logic election, right? It's it's one for the sake of the community, Christ for the community. Right. But the community for all humanity and humanity for all, all creation. creation. Yep. Isn't that cool? Yes. I, don't know, I, just, I think that's a great... Where is this? Oh, that comes from Karl Barth uh, from Church Dogmatics. Uh, 
paragraph 30.1. First, first, first sentence. I almost said first verse, not the Bible, just part. Uh, <laughs> I just think that close. captures the not even close, vague, very distant, right? <laughs> well, and in the, uh, in the original German, the word right. loves is, appears only once at the end of the sentence in classic annoying German where it puts the verbs at the end. But, <laughs> but right. that means it's that one act of love right. that unfolds through the individual to the community to humanity to creation. Um, and that in many ways is the whole pattern of this, this, uh, text, right? You could have a beautiful sermon about that. The servant for the sake of Israel, Israel for the sake of all the nations and all the nations, because God just loves the whole world. Oh, that's exciting. That's fun. Well, those are two or three, depending on how you count, uh, sermon starters for you. Thank you so much, Laura, for the time you've taken. Thanks to all our listeners, as always, for for uh, uh, listening in. We appreciate it a ton. And uh, I just want to say a quick thank you to Eric and Todd for all the great production work they do. Thanks to Tom for donating the theme music. And with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. Bye.